0: was to uh, do the 21-day fast. The two big steps. And we talked about overflow. And that really lasted like two weeks. And so we're going to get back to Matthew because we're reading and studying through the book of Matthew. So we're going to get right back to it. And we left off uh, Matthew chapter 14. Um, the title of the message is The Fox. And uh, that will help you with your bonus question, your bulletin. That's a giveaway for you. It's a freebie. So... Um, let's take a look uh, at the passage let's read it and let's see uh, what is going on here because when we last left off Jesus was talking about all these different parables parables of weeds wheat and weeds he was talking about uh, mustard seed and yeast uh, he's talking about hidden treasures and a pearl a parable of the net he's talking about what the kingdom of heaven is like and he just like explained it in so many different ways and we looked at all of those ways and he compared it to a lot of things that they knew about and what happens is we sort of switch gears. Like we're sort of away from that scene, away from Jesus explaining and kind of giving, giving this commentary, these illustrations of what the kingdom of heaven is like. And now it's just, uh, we switch to a whole other area. And this is a very interesting passage. I'll tell you what, um, in your bulletin was uh, King Herod. You mentioned King Herod. And I, I had in my mind a certain idea, a certain view of this man. And um, there's actually four Herods in the Bible. It can get very confusing. Um, but the particular, uh, really any herod at all, I had a certain idea, and view in my mind that uh, I, I thought was, you know, pretty biblical and pretty accurate. But we're going to find out this morning that uh, maybe I wasn't all that biblical and accurate, at least on one of the herods. And um, his story is kind of a sad story, actually. Um, we're going to figure out that somebody could just, you know, hear the gospel, be around the gospel even take part in the gospel and be like so close to making that final commitment and then just not do it. And just not do it. And you know, what are some of the reasons for that? Why does that happen? Well, we're going to figure out particularly in his case what the reason might be because certainly we are very different everywhere and there could be a lot of different reasons and you know, Who knows what it might be. But for him, we get to study and glean and kind of take out what has happened. So we're going to look at three questions to help us look at this dynamic of almost committed. Almost committed. Three questions that we're just going to look at to say, how come he was almost there? Why didn't he just go all in? So Matthew chapter 14, we're going to read that and then we're going to flip over to Mark chapter 6. And that's where we're going to spend the bulk of our study time. But I wanted to read both so that we can see how they contrast. So Matthew chapter 14 verse 1 uh, says, At that time Herod the Tetrarch and we'll talk about that in a minute heard the reports about Jesus and he said to his attendants this is John the Baptist he has risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. So verse 3. It says, Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias his brother Philip's wife. So you got Herod, you got Herodias. For John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered him a prophet. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for them and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered uh, that her request be granted and had John uh, beheaded in prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. John's disciples came, took his body, and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. So interesting, right? So you look at that right there, and you see Herod kind of as this guy, really kind of gets called out, doesn't like it, orders John to get killed, and then the disciples come and kind of take his body. So now, Mark gives us a little bit more of an insight to this guy, Herod, and exactly what was behind this decision of getting John uh, and killing him. Because it kind of seems to be, in this passage, to be kind of fast and, and simple and clear cut. But there's actually a little bit more to the story. So we go to Mark chapter 6, and that's where we're really going to hang out. Verse 14 says, King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. The last passage started off like that, too. It's sort of like this preface. There's something going on here, and we'll talk about what that is in a minute. Others said, is he Elijah? And so others claimed he was a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, the man I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. So finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, Ask me for anything you want, and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, Whatever you ask, I'll give you up to half my kingdom. She went out, said to her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried in to the king with the request I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded uh, John in prison. Uh, And brought the head back on a platter. He presented it to the girl and she gave it to her mother. On hearing this, John's disciples came, took his body, and laid it in a tomb. So in this particular passage, we get a little bit more of an insight into Herod and to this woman, Herodias. Because she plays a very big part in all this. And maybe we might not have seen that if we just read Matthew um, chapter 14. She has a really significant part. She's actually calling a lot of the shots here. Apparently, King Herod isn't too much of a man, really. So, exactly what is going on here? Both passages start off with, well, I killed John the Baptist, and so this must, you know, I killed John the Baptist, he must be coming back again. That's how all these miracles and uh, all these radical things are taking place. That's like the preface, how how, how each part starts. Because at this time, Jesus had sent out the twelve, the apostles. He like prayed over them, blessed them. He said, listen, go out. I've given you what you need. Uh, you're going to heal people. You're going to cast out demons. It's going to be incredible. It's going to be amazing. Don't bring anything with you. God will provide what you need. Some people are going to hate you. They're going to try and kill you. But go forth. If they don't take your message, then just move on. So he does that. They go out. They transform this town, this area. Word gets back to Herod. And he's like, What? I thought I killed John the Baptist. Like, I don't understand this. And other people are like, well, you know, that's, that must be Elijah. You know, but in actuality, it's like Jesus and those 12 apostles going out and doing this. And then after that is explained what happened to John the Baptist. So a couple of things we've got to keep in mind. One is this Herod family. So the one when Jesus was born that we just celebrated a few weeks ago at Christmas time, you know, King Herod, he says, listen, go out, kill all the kids under two. You know? That was his dad. That's his dad. Then they move back and now we have this guy Herod Antipas. And then later, after this guy, there's another Herod who kills James, puts Peter in prison. And then the last Herod, when we we're in the book of Acts, Paul the Apostle stood before him. So we've got this Herod line, not a big fan of Christians, really at all. And uh, what happens, at least from the Mark passage, is that John the Baptist is out there in the wilderness, preaching his message, you know, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, baptizing people. And uh, somehow the topic, the subject, the issue of Herod and his brother-in-law's wife comes up. Which is really an adulterous affair Is what's going on And he says You know what It's not lawful And a mark It doesn't say that You know Herod sent for him Herodias sent for him She's like And she nursed a grudge You know Against this guy And uh, she wanted to kill him And so just sitting on it Staring over how can I do this? How can I get this guy? Well, first step is get him in prison and wait for an opportune time. She gets her opportune time, has her daughter do a dance, really sexually like, explicit type dance. He, of course, he's a big fan. Third ball. And, then, uh, and that just gives you an idea. Like it's her daughter. You know what I mean? Like, freak show. So that happens. And then uh, you know, he says something stupid. He knows he says something stupid. But then again, he's more afraid of other people than actually standing up in courage to make the right choice. And so this is kind of a snapshot, a picture of who this guy is, who's kind of torn, who really liked John the Baptist, and used some interesting words. So we're going to take a look at this stuff. So what are the three questions that we're going to look at that help us get a better understanding of people who just come so close, but yet they may end up totally lost? Three questions. Well, here's the first question. Number one is, do I have a biblical worldview? Do I have a biblical worldview? So, here's what I mean. And here's why this matters. It might seem like it doesn't really matter. It's not that important. Um, But, uh, here's what I'm talking about. So, worldview, that's like the framework. Like, everything we see, a lens, like you see this guy, you know, this uh, uh, magnifying glass. It looks like the guy from Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego. Doesn't it look like that guy? Um... You look through the lens, and that's the way you see the world. And so, you know, if uh, you know, you're a two-year, three-year-old, you know, like Jaren, you think the world you know revolves around yourself, and you're the center of it. Of course, there's you know, 50-year-olds that think the same thing. Um, an atheist humanist, you know, might believe that you know, just a person exists, and there's just this life, and then that's it. You know, a Buddhist uh, sees it through the lens of uh, you know, enlightenment. And you try and reach that by just really self-denial uh, and purification. And that's try how, how they try to get there. Um, but a biblical uh, worldview—it's pretty interesting. I was looking at some stats, so check this out. Okay, so uh, some research done in 2009. It's a little bit old, but but not too bad. Nine percent of all American adults have a biblical worldview, meaning. No matter what you see, no matter what happens, this book, like, you have some basic beliefs and assumptions. Like, there's an absolute, you know, right, and absolute wrong, regardless of the situation and the circumstance, uh, that there's this thing called sin, uh, that faith is actually important. So, check it out, right? 9% of all American adults have a biblical worldview. We're in the minority, big time. That automatically, like, leads to just... Um, You know assumptions. You know that's going to be difficult. You know that we're going to be labeled a certain way. That we're going to lose friends. That's going to be strained. Well, maybe uh, amongst the born again Christians, the percentage is a little bit higher, wouldn't you think? The born again Christians would have, you know, maybe the the higher biblical worldview. Well, unfortunately, nineteen percent of born agains have a true biblical worldview. The heck are they doing? Why do they even show up for half the stuff? I guess it makes them feel good and they think they're doing the right thing. 19% born against. So even if we are, quote unquote, born again Christians, still in the minority. And people still might not want to hear what we have to say. Of course it matters how we say it. Like that's the part we'll get to later. But the overall message of sin, people don't want to hear it. Here's another one one quarter of adults, almost almost 30%, are convinced that Satan is a real force. 27%. So three quarters of people don't even think that you know, there really is a Satan, or a devil, or anything like that. And a minority of born-again adults, 40%, have the same perspective. So even less than half of born-agains even believe that. And like, we're trying to go out and be sought, be light, Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, disciple, encourage, and the minority. Even if you're sitting in the pew or in the chair or in the balcony at church and you take it seriously, you're in the minority. Says so young adults rarely possess a biblical worldview. I mean, you know, I just come to one of my classes, that's for sure. uh, between 18 to 23 is the younger crowd that they're talking about. And the percentage that have a biblical worldview that's like that 18 to 23 range, about 1%, as they get older, it's only 10%. You know? So, so here's the deal. So do I have a biblical worldview? And and why am I even asking that question? What does it even have to matter with the story of what we're talking about? Because here's the issue. Right? John the Baptist, he messed everything up for them, like, his biblical worldview is, listen, God said that's not right. And I'm going to call a spade a spade. I'm going to say it, and I'm going to do it. And I'm not going to sugarcoat it. That's where the whole problem started. Just think, like, if he did not, you know, he didn't have to sugarcoat it. I I mean, he didn't have to be so honest. He could have said, well, listen, Herod's guys have shown up. Maybe we could water it down a little bit. Maybe we could just talk about our message of repentance, but maybe not touch so much on what his deal is, what his sin is. And chances are he got asked the question, you know, and he just gave it to him. See, what happened, and what I was thinking about, was that John the Baptist was confronted with a situation in life where God's Word was completely opposite of popular accepted opinion. That's the situation he was in. What God said was completely opposite with what was going on. In fact, he could even be intimidated out of maybe still saying the truth. And usually, I think when that happens for most of us, I think avoidance somehow creeps in as an option, sugarcoating creeps in as an option, denial. Just water down a little bit. I think very rarely does stand strong maybe coming as an option. And if there's, you know, only a few percentage of people that even hold to a biblical worldview, well, you're really not going to be liked. We're really not going to be liked. So the question, you know, what makes it difficult for us to like hold on to the biblical worldview? And I should say, before I get much further, is that in order to have the biblical worldview, like we got to know something about the Bible. That's sort of an assumption. It's like that's a part of us that we have to continue and everybody's at different places you know with the Bible understanding God understanding His grace understanding His love but the idea is always move forward always move forward shouldn't be at the same place for like you know ten years it's not a good thing right should always be moving forward so what makes it so difficult why can't we just hold on to this biblical worldview stuff well we could lose some friends we could offend important people much like John the Baptist had going on We could be labeled as judgmental or not accepting. And in 2013, tolerating and accepting every behavior is more like the right, acceptable way to do things now. You tolerate it, you accept it, and you say, yeah, okay. I mean, the hot button issues, right? Homosexuality, marriage family structure, abortion, the death penalty, capital punishment. These are hot-button issues. Um, God's Word fits in there. We need to know and have the biblical worldview. And we have to understand how the Bible fits into there. And so that's going to cause us, hopefully, to like dig deeper, to read, to look other places and say, is this just my opinion because I want to be right? What does God's word actually say about it? I want to hold on to a biblical worldview, it's incredibly important. That's the lens we want to look at this world from. See, because from John the Baptist, his biblical worldview is I'm trying to save this guy. His biblical worldview is, listen, there's a hell... Like, his message in the desert... And how how does it even work? God is amazing. So he's in the wilderness, a desert wilderness. The Jordan is there. Like, how does he start? He doesn't send out, like, a mailing, you know, that I might do. He doesn't send out a mailing. He doesn't have business cards. He doesn't have, like, a website. There's no guy, like, going before him. There's probably a few, like, farmers and shepherds out there. He's like, listen, you got to get your life in order. Hell is a real place. And God is real. So please, just like repent of maybe the way you've been living and what you thought Give your life over to God. And he's like, I'm going to come back again tomorrow and say the same thing. <laughs> and I bet the shepherds and the farmers are like, listen, you've got to come hear this guy. It's kind of a whack job, but you should come hear him. What he's saying might be true. And I assume that's probably how he starts gathering the crowds. And so in his mind, biblical worldview fueled it all. And so he's saying as, listen, God sent me to prepare the way for Jesus who's coming. He's the forerunner. And what's my message? What's my role? For John the Baptist, his message and his roles was set the stage. Make it real nice. Make it real accurate. Set it. Get it ready for Jesus when he comes. And the message is, his one message, John the Baptist had one message. And Jesus said he was the uh, greatest man born among women. Matthew 11 11, I think. Greatest ever. That's what Jesus said about it. His message was, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And he said, listen, the axe is close, you know, to uh, cutting down the tree, basically. Like, you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Get it in order. Get it in line. That's his message. And so in his mind, he's not even really thinking about, are they going to like me or not? Am I going to ask as a friend? Um, am I being sensitive enough? You know... His thing is, I, if I really love them, I'm going to save them. I'm trying to save Herod. I'm trying to save these people. Totally different mind shift. And in his mind, if he covered it or sugarcoated it, he's thinking he's going to do them more harm than good. And I think it's a really sad thing when maybe sometimes, um, you know, pastors or... Religious authorities really water and sugarcoat things down um, just to maybe make our flesh feel good and not really give us a whole story. Nobody likes that. And then maybe find out the real story from somebody else. That's always painful. And sports is always like a magnifying glass for that. You know, you think you're really awesome, you're really good. You're going to go to a playground start playing with someone. I was a stud on this court. Let me take you to this court. Like doesn't work out you know and then it's not a good thing so we have to hold on to that biblical worldview that's where the whole thing started john the Baptist saying hey listen it's not lawful for you to do that it's not so now since he does that there's a response that's got to happen so the second question is how do i respond to truth that stings how do i respond to truth that hurts and maybe, as we say that, you think of instances or situations in your own life that's like, well, I don't know if I want to brag about that. When it's a truth for someone else, and they got to get something else right, and they got to fix something, we might be a little eager to help them. Um, but when it comes to us, you know, we might not be uh, so eager, and we might even try uh, and ignore it. And for Herodias, so that's the issue with Herodias, Verse 19, here's her response. Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him, but she was not able to. That was her response. She nursed a grudge. She had bitterness. She had resentment. So much so that she wanted to kill him. And even if she couldn't get her little dirty fingers on him and kill him herself... She was going to try and figure out a way to do it and to make it happen. And when you really hate somebody, that's like what's feeling it. I don't care what bad comes to them. I want to make sure they get it. Uh, One quality that I really like uh, in people that I think is really rare um, is the ability for some people, and I think as Christians we we strive to get there, You know, but of course we're all a work in progress, is the ability to handle truth as quickly as possible. The ability to handle the truth as quickly as possible. So if somebody brings up an issue or says something that like has a sting and has some truth to it, you know, there's a response that we could have. We could be immediately defensive right away, which I think is what most of us do. We could possibly also look past maybe the delivery. And see, listen, is there like any truth in what they're saying at all? And some of us possess that ability well, and I think a lot of us maybe don't so well. But I think as a goal, like as Christians, like we want to be there because we wanted to rejoice in the truth, like it says in the Bible. We want to be able to rejoice in the truth, like, yes, I don't want to do that. No, that's not right. Now, the way you said it, like, you were pretty much a jerk when you did that, and you know, here's why. But at the root of what you're saying, yes. Like, that's true. We want to respond and like rejoice in the truth. And so when God uses other people in situations to maybe bring some things out that sting or that hurt a little bit, how much are we going to fight against it? I hope, I hope, I hope. Right? Our response is not like that. Where we just get mad at Him. We get bitter. We get resentful at Him. That's not the response that we want. Because we know that God is constantly trying to make us into the image of His Son. And He's trying to burn off all this stuff that He knows is going to trip us up and make life difficult for us. And then when He brings it in front of our face and we're like, nah, you know, we don't want that. It's like, no, but you asked me you like to do this. You know, you sing these songs, you say these prayers of God, work in my life and, you know, do what you want to do, have your way. And then He brings things forward and says, listen, you got to deal with these so I can bring you into these particular areas. And then what are we going to do? Sit back and say, Ah, they're a bunch of jerks. They don't know what they're talking about. Right? We don't want to do that. And then worst case, obviously something like Herodias. So obviously she has a bad response. So, the third question is going to be, Will I be courageously committed to Christ? Will I be courageously committed to Christ? That's the last one here. And that's, I think, the biggest issue in all of this. You know, it's a picture of the movie uh, Courageous right there. Uh, We're going through that in our uh, men's study. Um, Great movie. Yep. If you're looking for a movie to watch, I would definitely watch it. Um, Really good look as far as, you know, just men stepping up, being courageous in the right ways. Throughout this entire passage... There's a big, stark contrast between two guys that are really kind of like playing center role here. John the Baptist and Herod. See, John the Baptist stuck up, had the biblical worldview and is like, I don't care what it costs me, I got to do it. And you got another guy who's continuously influenced by others and is just looking to compromise. Stark, starkly different. John the Baptist being courageous Herod really being a compromising coward or in Jesus' terms calling him a fox because he's a sly crafty sort of manipulative deceitful kind of guy who wants to get what he wants because he's just really a selfish guy when you you read about this man he was into pleasure he just wanted what he wanted and it didn't matter what he had to do to get it in fact he was married he had a wife his uh, His stepbrother's wife is what he was into, and who he's having an affair with. And he's like, "Well, forget her. You know, I want her." And so, just a sick guy. And then you can tell he's into like, you know, her daughter dancing, and offering her up to half the kingdom. Compromising coward. Look at these words that Herod used. So this is the part that really stuck out to me. When I was saying before, I was like, "Man, you know, when I think about Herod, pretty much all the Herods, all four of them, I think, man, just, you know." Bad people. Just bad people. And God was like right there. Some people might think, man, you were alive when Jesus was around, John the Baptist, this whole thing was rolling, and these guys did nothing but fight it and just kill people off. This guy may have been close. He may have been close. Let's take a Look at these words used here. In verse 20, so Mark 6, verse 20. says, because Herod feared John, he feared him, which means he respected him, right? He protected him. You don't do that if you just want to kill this guy right away, right? And we might get that thought if you read just Matthew. He feared him, he protected him. What else did he think about him? He thought he was righteous, he thought he was holy, he liked to listen to him, and he was greatly puzzled doesn't sound like a guy who's really all out now hating this guy he didn't mind being around the gospel message what he had to say he would even protect him to make sure he wouldn't die there's a recognition that what he was saying like man this is true like this is coming from another place but unfortunately Herod missed the kingdom because he feared John more than he feared God he feared like the person delivering the message, you know, more than he actually maybe feared God and what the message actually was all about. He missed it. And I think for us, this is the biggest part. Because Christians, right, we have to be courageous. Have to be. H-A-V-E, we have to be. That's the way Jesus did it. Like that's the essence of Christianity. Like that's the cross. It's you know, something laying before us being scared, maybe not wanting to do it but then having the courage to say ah, yes, I am scared I don't know what's going to happen, there is doubt, there is frustration, but I'm going to go I'm going to do it, I'm going to go and I'm going to do it, right? Courageous We have to be and of course we're all, again, work in progress on that scale but I hope we're taking steps towards it I hope it's in our minds that, okay, 2013, I'm going to be more courageous than I was in 2012, and more courageous in a way, like for Christ. You know? It came easier for John the Baptist because his heart was secured and centered on the Father. And that's why, like, the fast would be really beneficial. It'll help secure us and center us on the Father and in His Word. And then if we're journaling and praying, like, that helps. That helps drive some of our courage and biblical worldview. And courage is certainly found in avoiding sin and trying to stay away from it. That's for sure, and I think a lot of people would say that. But courage is also found in sticking up for and maybe being involved in injustices, difficulties, and trials. Like sometimes we've got to face stuff head on. Sometimes that's the deal. That's not always the fun one either because that causes the conflict and maybe some potential loss on our part. So Herod, he didn't want to give up on his precious, darling sin, which for him happened to be adultery. For a lot of people, they got a precious, darling sin. And when the whole biblical worldview thing comes into play, I don't want to give up that sin. And that's what it comes down to that's what it comes down to in many ways and this is where compromising Christians fail because almost saved is still totally lost so for Herod he was almost decided right, almost there, right at the cuff he respected him, he wanted to listen he wanted to get more, he even protected the guy but what stopped him was others and his own sin. He loved his sin. He loved you know, his relationship you know, with Herodias. And other people influenced him too. Like we read right here. It says in verse 26, The king was greatly distressed. But because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he didn't want to refuse it. Like that's what mattered to him. You know what he said and what other people are going to say about him. He had his chance to shine. He really did. And unfortunately, he missed it. So, Ray, we had three questions to help us look at how we can be almost there and struggles that happen along the way. So, the first question was Do I have a biblical worldview? You know, how do I respond to a truth that stings? And am I going to be a committed, courageous Christian? See, it's pretty interesting. You can look at this from another angle too. If, from God's perspective. Like, what if, knowing, like, who God is, Herod, four Herods, and arguably the most important time in history, ruling. What if God was actually trying to do all that He could to try and save that family and get them in heaven. What if, right? There's a pretty darn good chance of that. Just because of the way we know God in his heart. And then he brings in John the Baptist. And then he like pretty much almost brings him into his house. And he hears the message. And this is only here at number two. Like everything could have been set on a whole other direction. If he grabs a hold of Herod Antipas, the fox, could have changed his family radically. Could have been amazing. Could have. Could have. And John 3, 19-20, really explains you know, a lot of what's going on here. It says this is the verdict. This is Jesus talking to Nicodemus, another like religious leader of the day. Sometimes they call it Nick at night. Right? Went and visited Nicodemus at night. Nick at night. Says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light. And will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. I mean, that's many times the toughest part. You know what I mean? We got ourselves at the center of the universe... And if we do go with this biblical worldview, and we do go with issues like sin and what God says is acceptable and what it's not, it's certainly going to ruffle some feathers. And it says that Satan is the king of this world. Prince of this world. He's the prince of this world. And so he's not in hell right now. He will be. But he's around on this earth right now and he has his demons going around with him at work, actively at work. Trying to poison what God is trying to do. And that's why it says our, 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 our struggle is not with flesh and blood, right? but against the darkness and powers and principalities. So unfortunately, it's kind of sad for Herod because he just is so close, almost decided, but it's a classic case of he didn't have enough sand. He didn't have enough sand like to make the right decision, let other people influence so much that he couldn't be his own person who he knew he should be and made decisions that he knew he should make. And unfortunately, his eternity probably got cost because of it. It's too bad. The good news is, is that God was still trying to pursue after him. Because even the last Herod he had Paul standing right before him say, Hey, listen, choose this day who you're going to serve. What are you going to do? The good news is that God continues to pursue and work. The good news is, is that he does not use just John the Baptist, who really wasn't that qualified anyways. He didn't go you know, to seminary. He did not hang around with uh, elite religious leaders. Uh, he hung out in the wilderness, had long hair, had a leather belt, ate locusts and wild honey, probably kind of awkward and socially weird, right? But God used them. He was obedient to it. The good news is is that he's not just using qualified people. Many times, right? He calls and qualifies. Just what he does. So he's looking like to do that through all of us. It's pretty amazing when you think about it. If you actually buy into that and you actually really believe it, it's pretty amazing. Like, wow, God is looking to work through me in a very similar way, no matter where I'm at, to bring a biblical worldview, to bring salt, to bring light. And I hope that we could do it with love, because that's really the goal. And that's the passage you hear at weddings all the time, First Corinthians, you know, chapter 13, you know, love is, love is, love is. And if you do it without love, you know, you like a resounding gong or a symbol. There's just not much to it. So hopefully we could do it in love and do it the right way. But that requires some skill but those skills are never gained if we never actually take the courage and step out for that biblical worldview. So it's all related. So what we'll do is we'll uh, sing and uh, close uh, with Amazing Grace because I think that song is, uh, you know, just perfect about how God is continually working and searching and people, like, in our area, in this town, in our families... He's looking like to work through us, to work through us, pursuing after them, knowing that it's going to be incredibly difficult, knowing that they might be herods. So we're going to uh, stand and sing that, and then we'll close in prayer.